If you turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippian Christians, I shared with you last week that I'm, I'm going to try to, in my four Sundays preaching here, hit something out of each chapter that's been important to me. I, I, can't, I can't go word by word, though I would love to, because it's rich. This, this letter to the Philippians is different than all of his other letters. Some commentators had said, oh, the others are very doctrinal, but this letter is more pastoral and loving. It, it contains one of the deepest doctrines there is. In fact, it's it's still a mystery. It's still something you and I can't comprehend. And it's right here in chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Philippians. But backing up a little bit, because it starts with, with the word therefore. So when you see therefore, you always got to say, well, what's therefore, therefore? And I just want to back up and pick out two nuggets, again, out of chapter 1 that are really important to me. My very first memory verse that... I heard out at Warm Beach Community Church as a new Christian, they were sharing their uh, memory verses or promise verses. I can't remember what they called them. I claimed that as a promise. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And God had begun a very small work in me. I mean, I had gone from being a committed atheist teenager to now wanting to know God. I didn't do that on my own. God had to be doing that. So as, as much as I was failing trying to be a Christian and trying to live righteously and all the rest of the things I thought I had to do, um, when I heard this verse, I thought, well, then he's the one who's doing it. He's the one who's doing this work in me. I didn't know that Jesus was the author and the finisher of our faith. I didn't know that verse yet. But boy, when I saw this verse, I thought, well, I can, I can rest in that. I don't have to worry about whether or not I'll make it. I'm going to make it because he's the one who's doing the work and he will complete it. Take this promise for yourself. Because the devil is the accuser of the brother, and he's accusing you day and night, and he's pointing out stuff that's true. He doesn't even have to make up stuff about you, does he? He just points out the stuff that's true, your sin. And it can get us down. It can get us off track. It can make us think, well, what's the use? I'm going to give up. Take this promise. Hang on to it. It'll give you promise. Um, it'll give you confidence. Now, there's another uh, thing in here that's not exactly like stated as a promise, but it's an implied promise. And it's later on as Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And Paul, even though he was in um, prison, so to speak, in Rome, chained to a, a Roman guard under house arrest, and being a Roman citizen, um, the death that he could expect would be beheading, which was far better than any other death that the Romans meted out. Uh, they were pretty gruesome. Uh, and, and yet he didn't know. He didn't know whether he was going to live or whether he was going to die, whether he was going to get to go and see the Philippian Christians again. Or, but he says, you know, actually to depart and be with Christ is far better. And in this, I see the, the tremendous peace that comes from knowing that you're in Christ. 
He had written uh, to the Corinthian Christians in second, he'd written a couple times, second Corinthians um, chapter five and verse eight. He says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's kind of like head off, head on. It's like going through a door and all of a sudden you're on the inside to be absent from the body. What a what an amazing thing. Ek demos. Ek meaning out of, demos meaning out of the crowd, out of the group, to in demos being in another crowd. When we leave here, we're immediately ushered into the presence of the Lord. <clears throat> There's no soul sleep, no waiting around. No purgatory to go through or somebody else has got to say prayers for you or pay money to get you out of it. Nothing like that. That's not true. To be absent from my body and to be absent from all of you is to be present with the Lord and to be present with the host of heaven. And so no wonder Paul would say, well, that's far better, but I've got to stay here because God's got a job for me to do, but as soon as I get to go home... That's a great thing. So in this world that we're living in right now, um, with all this threat of, maybe you don't even know there's a threat of nuclear war. Did you know that? I mean, as I grew up as a kid, we had dug a bomb shelter back in our house in Everett, and we had a lot of food stocked up and everything. And I was always, uh, I'm walking from school, from grade school, uh, at Madison Elementary all the way out to Lower Ridge Road. I was, you know, if there was a bright flash, I was supposed to throw myself in a ditch somewhere. You know, you don't. If you're in, a, in the house, you hide under a desk, but if you're outside, you look for a ditch. Any of you ever grew up with that? This fear of, yeah, this is going to happen. And, and so now this new generation that's come up, they're getting to experience that. Hey, there's no worries. There's no problem. There is absolutely nothing to worry about. Do you know there's even Christians that are worrying about the coming of the Lord? I mean, they're actually worrying about all the, the end time events and they're saying, well, I haven't got raptured out yet and now I'm a re really kind of worried because of all this stuff that's coming. You don't have anything to worry about. God's targeting is precise. And you are not appointed unto the wrath of God. But you are going to suffer tribulation here in this world. Paul was experiencing tribulation, but the great hope that he had was to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so there's that Im implicit promise that I hang on to that I'd like you to hang on to, too. As we get now into uh, chapter 2, there's, there's really uh, an important, uh, to me, promise that I want to drag out of here that I want you to have as well. But I've got to get to this most amazing doctrinal thing that Paul brings out. So we'll start here uh, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, or it could be uh, translated if there's any comfort in Christ, if there, and it would be the same word that's used of the comforter, the parakletos, the, the Holy Spirit who comes alongside of us to help us. If there's any comfort of love, if any fellowship, koinonia in the spirit, if there is any affection and mercy, if there's any uh, kindness and tenderness and, and, and this love for one another, is there any of that in Christ? Is there any of that in being a Christian? 
Is, is there any comfort in knowing that you belong to Christ? Is there any comfort in being loved by God? Is there any fellowship in the Spirit? Is there any of that? There should be. If, if there's not, we've got a problem. And we need to figure out, well, what is that problem? If I am in fellowship with Christ and with the body of Christ, these things have got to be in me. These are, this has to be my experience. And if it's not, then I need to take care of something. Paul says in verse 2, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So if we find ourselves lacking any of these things, the solution is right there in verse 2. We need to be of one mind. Well, whose mind is that going to be? Your mind or my mind? Which one of us is going to force our will on the other? And you see, that's where the problem comes. We're all striving to have our own mind accepted by everybody else. The way I think is the way you ought to think. And that causes us to break fellowship. That causes us to lose the comfort of love and the comfort of Christ. Verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, each esteem others as better than himself. This is an ego buster. It's intended to be. We should always esteem others as better than ourselves. That doesn't mean that we irrationally put ourselves down or we discount the gift of God that is in us. No, that doesn't mean that. Or to go around and, and bemoan all of our failures. No, but I have found that this is true. I can always find something in someone else that I can admire that is better than me. Except, well, maybe some of the really, really bad guys. But at least they're persistent in their badness. So maybe that would be it. I don't know. But try that sometime. Try looking at other people this way. Is there something to be admired in this person? Something that is better than me. Not to put yourself down, but to elevate others. If you can elevate others, then you can get yourself out of this thing where you want your selfish ambition to be accomplished. It's okay to be ambitious if your ambition is to serve the Lord. We need more ambitious people in the church. We need people who want to serve and are willing to put themselves out there to do it, but not selfish ambition, not to lift self up, but to bless other people, to care for other people. Let each of you, verse 4, look not only on his own interest, but also for the interest of others. It's so simple. It really is simple. The only reason we have trouble with it is because of our sin nature. Now, ever since you were born and you looked around, everywhere that you could see, you were the center of it, right? Right? And you commanded your parents' attention by crying so that they would bring you whatever it was that you felt you want. You, we grow up selfish. We grow up thinking that we are the center of everything. 
And we want to bring everything then in towards our will and our ambition. But this is not the way to live the Christian life. The Christian life is outward. The Christian life is doing things for others. And now, we now we're going to find out in verse 5 the mind that we should have, the mind that we should strive to have together. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, the mind of Christ. And, and the demonstration is this, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, who being in the form of God. And it wasn't robbery for him to be equal with God. It wasn't something that he had to grasp and try to take for himself because it's something he always had. I was raised in the Mormon church, and if you know anything about Mormon doctrine, um, Supposedly, you were spirit children before you came to earth and were born into a human body. You live out your human life here in your human body as kind of an intern for your godship. You're working your way to godhood. You're going to become a god of your own planet and all this extra stuff. I didn't think I paid any attention as a kid. I was sure I didn't pay any attention. But evidently, a lot of that had soaked in because... As I became a Christian, later on after I went through my atheist phase, and I became a Christian, and I was wanting to live like Christ, and I was wanting to do everything that Jesus did, and I was not succeeding. I was failing. I tried really hard to be just like Jesus. And I remember being at Warm Beach Community Church one Sunday morning in Sunday school, after having done all the milking and the farm chores and, and couldn't wait to get to church to learn things. And, and they finally got around to John 1.1 in Sunday school. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I'm like, well, no wonder he could live that way. He always was God. I'm not God. I'm not even working my way to God. Boy, did that take a load off. A lot of times we just assume people know everything we know, and we keep doing our churchianity thing, and we have church, and we just go through the motions, and y'all come sit here, and you spectate, and then some guy gets up here, and he bloviates, and uh, then we think, well, I went to church. I think that we need to pay attention a little bit more to making sure that people understand some of these important doctrines of Scripture. Jesus always was God. He is God the Son. And it wasn't robbery for him to have deity. The great mystery is this. He was completely human. How does that work? How can someone who is omnipresent, everywhere at once. In fact, beyond everywhere, everywhere that you and I can know, the universe itself is contained in him. He is transcendent above and beyond all. And someone who is omniscient knows everything 
and knows everything that could ever be known. And someone who is omnipotent, who is all-powerful, how could someone like that be located as a embryo in a virgin's womb at one place in time? And how much did he know? And how powerful was he? And then he's born. And how much does he know? The hand goes past his face. He doesn't even know it belongs to him yet. Not very powerful as a baby. And yet, he's confined to a single place in space and time. How could that ever be? You ever wonder about that? Completely human. In fact, he went through everything that we go through. The Bible says he was tested in every point like as we are, yet without sin. But he was tested. He suffered hunger. He suffered weariness. He suffered discouragement. He said, oh, no. Oh, yeah. How could that be? Right here. Right here. Verse 7. But made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of a man. The Greek word is kenou. It means emptying, a self-emptying. It is something that he himself did. What did he empty himself of? Well, I'll tell you what he didn't empty himself of. He did not empty himself of his essential deity because he always was and always will be God the Son. He is called by John with the name Lagos, which means not just a spoken word, but the expression behind the word. He is everything that can be said about God. He is the Lagos of God but the Lagos, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. This is a great mystery. So he did not set aside his essential deity. He still is who he is. But he took on a different name. He was given the name Yahashua in Hebrew, Jesus in Greek, Jesus in English, Jehovah saves and he walked among us completely human but he was still God so what did he empty himself of well to me it's rather obvious he emptied himself of being everywhere at once so he could be at that one place in time he had to empty himself of omniscience of knowing everything so that he could learn as he went along he didn't just know everything but he learned. And where did he learn it from? The written word. The walking word learned the written word. And at 12 years old, he's in the temple speaking to the doctors of the law about these things and asking questions that have them totally dumbfounded, things they hadn't even considered. And he emptied himself of 
omnipotence, having all power. Else how could he grow weary? How could he know what it's like for you to be tired at the end of a day and to be hungry and to be weary? How could he identify with you without emptying himself of these power attributes of God? Let's call him that. But essentially, he was still deity. This is a great mystery. We don't want to take it too far because we can't understand it. There's a lot of things that I have questions about that I can't understand from the Word. But you know what? There's enough here that I can believe. There's enough here that I can believe. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, the word says. He became cursed so that we could be blessed. And this is the gospel right here. Your salvation is because Jesus, the God-man, went to the cross and died in your place. Now, if he did that, he must really love you, don't you think? Knowing who and what you are, in this God demonstrated his love toward us, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was while we were sinners. Was it for all of our sins in the past? Yes. What about our sins of the present? What about our sins of the future? The devil will want to try to tell you, oh, no, Jesus died for your past sins, but now you have to work it out and make sure that you never sin again. Well, that's a losing deal, isn't it? No, the one who loved you enough to die on the, Christ, or the cross for you has made this so simple. You just have to trust that and believe in that. And God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Above the name of Jehovah, above every name, because it is Jehovah saves, Jesus. That's our English word. But remember, underlying it is the Hebrew, Yahshua. Yahshua. Yah saves. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You can do it now or you can do it later, but everybody's going to do it. Everybody's going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Those who do it before they die are part of the family of God and they're going to heaven. Those that do it after are forever lost. So it's an easy choice, right? Easy choice. Paul said, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God is raising him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, I did that. I did that. 
but I wasn't sure if I really believed it or not. I just did it. They told me to do it, so I did it. You know, I said the words. I remember one night, I was going to Bible school at this time. I'd been a Christian for a while, sold the cows, going to Bible school. We'd bought a house on Lake Goodwin, and I was laying there in bed, and I woke up. Immediately, I mean, I, was, I knew right where I was, but I couldn't move a muscle. I couldn't move my body. It was like I was paralyzed. God woke me up. And the Holy Spirit asked me a question. Is Jesus your Lord? And I didn't answer right away. I looked in the depths of my soul to see if there was any reservation. And there wasn't. And I said, yes, Jesus is my Lord. But I was paralyzed. I couldn't move. And then that same, not audible voice, but the presence of God asked me, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? I didn't answer right away. I didn't give the stock, sure, sure, sure. But I searched my soul. Was there any reservation? Did I have any doubt? And I said, yes. Jesus rose from the dead. And I'm wide awake, just paralyzed. And then the word came to me, you shall be saved. What a relief. What a relief. Not because of any good works I had done. I hadn't done any. It's a good thing. I couldn't do any, but because Jesus really is my Lord, still is, and because I know that he rose from the dead, I'm more convinced now than ever before, and everything else spins around that. If, it, if that wasn't true, I wouldn't believe any of it. It would just be another religion. But because that's true and because of Jesus' testimony about what we call the Old Testament, I know that's true. And because of what is written about Jesus in the New Testament, I know that is true. Our salvation spins around that. Now I want to take you to this promise to be grasped and hung on to out of here, out of second, uh, excuse me, out of Philippians chapter 2. It's down here in verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Wow, there goes all my confidence right there. Thanks a lot. I mean, you, you just gave me all this great confidence that I'm saved, and all of a sudden now you're saying, yeah, so work it out. I've been trying to do that, and it hasn't been going so well. I don't want to sin. I hate sin. Yeah, where do you think that came from? Oh, well, thank you. Because before I became a Christian, I didn't hate sin. I liked it. I didn't feel bad that I was a sinner. After I became a Christian, something changed. All of a sudden, I noticed 
not only that I was a sinner in general terms, but I began to notice specific things that I was doing that I didn't like anymore. I began to notice that I didn't like what I saw in myself. Sin became exceedingly sinful. Have you ever experienced that? When you became a Christian, did you experience that at all? Where all of a sudden the things you thought were okay, yeah, they're not okay. This, this doesn't make me feel good. And even today, I still do things that I, th- I don't want to do that. I don't want to have that attitude. I don't want to do that kind of action. I don't want to be that kind of person. That didn't come from you. That didn't come from me. That came from our parakletos, our comforter, the Holy Spirit, who is our guide, who has come to live inside us and take the things that belong to Jesus and make them really real to us. Verse 13 is the promise. For it is God who works in you to both will and to do his good pleasure. Your will doesn't count for a whole lot. Your determination will end up in frustration. But here's the amazing thing. As we work our way along the timeline of our life, you were born, you're going to die, and you're working your way down that timeline. Some of us are a lot closer. Seriously. And, and we realize as Christians, I'm going to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Maybe my family won't like it so much. But I'm going to really like it. But I'm working along that timeline, and I'm working out the salvation that he has given me. And I'm doing it with fear and trembling before an awesome holy God. But I'm not working to get my salvation. I'm working out the salvation, the train, the salvation train he put me on. And this is my confidence. God is working in me, first of all, to change my will. I want to do what God wants me to do, but that didn't come from me. That had to come from him, the author and the finisher of my faith. The one who began a good work in me is still continuing the good work in me. This is a reiteration of the promise in chapter 1, verse 6. This is why we can be confident of this very thing. Because God is working in you to change your will to correspond to his will. And your prayer life will change. Your prayer life should change. Your prayer life should grow up. Instead of trying to tell God what your will is and what his will should be and what you want him to do and how you think everything ought to go, you get to that place finally when you say, Father, you're in heaven. Your name's holy. I want your will to be done right here on earth in my life, just as it is in heaven. That's what I want. And if you ask anything according to his will, you know he hears you. And if you know he hears you, you know you have the petition you desire to him. That's in 1 John chapter 5. As a brand new Christian, I didn't know that you weren't supposed to ask God for stuff. I mean, and this has nothing to do with the prosperity gospel. Some people have accused me of that. I don't preach that. But as a brand new Christian, I thought, well, I can just ask God for stuff and he'll give it to me. 
So I asked, and I asked real specifically, and God specifically gave me the things I asked for. I started learning that <clears throat> then I had to pray to get rid of them. <laughs> you know, being a dairy farmer was not the easy job I thought it was going to be, and there was a lot of other things, and, and um, I learned I better be careful how I pray because I'm not really as smart as God, and I'll ask God, and he'll give me something just because he's good and he wants to teach me a lesson. And now I just pray and I say, God, have your will. Father, you're in heaven. That's a more mature way to pray. Jesus gave us that pattern to pray, not the, not the words, the specific words, you understand. It's not a prayer to be repeated like the heathen do, but it's, it is a manner in which to pray. To acknowledge God's our Father. Does he know what you need? Your father, if you had a good father, not everybody does, but if you had a good father and you were hungry and you asked your father for bread, is he going to give you a rock? Here, you knucklehead, eat this. No. You ask for a fish, is he going to give you a snake? No. That's what Jesus said. Your father knows how to give good gifts to his children. He's a lot better than earthly fathers. And he's in heaven. See, he's got a much better point of view than you and I do. We're down here working out our salvation with fear and trembling, and God is up there saying, look at those little guys stumbling along. I love them. Just love them. He loves you. And he is working in you his perfect plan of salvation. You can rest in this stuff. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for not giving me everything that I wanted, but giving me what you wanted so that your purpose could be carried out. Thank you for Machias Community Church. Thank you for this fellowship that we have here. And your purpose in us um, is being carried forward. I thank you for that. And in our individual lives. If there are any that are here this morning, that have never made that forever transaction with you, acknowledging Jesus as Lord, believing in their heart that he's risen from the dead. I pray that by your spirit, you will move in their hearts even right now to make that confession of faith. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.